Helene Olin is back. She's a columnist for The Washington Post, and she's the author of two books you should pick up as soon as possible, Pound Foolish and The Index Card. I want to talk to you about your latest column in The Washington Post entitled Coronavirus is an Indictment of Our Way of Life. A lot to, as they say, unpack there. But first, how are you? I'm fine. I'm going a bit stir crazy, but basically fine. Okay. And thank you for having me on, by the way. Oh, you've been, well, you've been sorely missed, and uh, I wish it was every week, but uh, we'll talk about that later. So let's talk about the stock market. It's had some wild swings. It is now, I believe, close to where it was when Donald Trump first took office. They've erased all his gains. This is now Trump's economy. Is that fair to say he now owns this economy? I think that's completely fair to say. He's, you know, first of all, people always believe the president is responsible for the economy and the stock market. You don't get to say, ooh, that guy three years ago, it's all his fault. At a certain point, you're in charge. And if after three and a quarter years, you're not in charge, it begs the question of what you've been doing for the past three and a quarter years. that, excuse me. Um, that being said, of course, it, to some extent, no, it's not any president's fault when such things happen. But there's no question in this case that Donald Trump tried to take credit for the stock market when the going was good, repeatedly and frequently. Best stock market ever, record highs, you know, biggest gain. It's all me. Uh, and at the same time, of course, his you know response to the coronavirus pandemic has made the situation in the stock market, which probably would not have been good regardless, much, much worse. I mean, it's kind of a joke that most of the time when he speaks, it, I mean, it like falls, which probably mm-hmm. says everything you need to know about just how reassuring the guy is at this point. And the, the stock market is down. People have seen, I, I, I would assume, more than a 20% decline in their 401ks if they have any you write right half the population doesn't have one at all half but the, po- I mean, the issue is of course much bigger than the stock market i mean the stock market is reacting to the fact that the economy itself is in a free fall um we believe unemployment numbers are going to be devastating when they come out next month we don't really quite know what they will be steve mnuchin predicted it could be up to 20 percent which would be staggering it's just really, really hard to know. We know that hundreds of thousands of people have tried to apply in New York. So it seems like the numbers are going to be like stuff we've never seen in our lifetime. I mean, within a very short period of time. Right. Um, the Metropolitan Opera here in New York um, laid off its entire staff today. Marriott Hotels furloughed huge numbers of its workers a few days ago. I mean, this is you know going to just be devastating. There's no question about it. And the bailouts, uh, a lot of people think there should be strings attached to the bailouts. You shouldn't be allowed to pay yourself an exorbitant bonus if you're the owner of a cruise ship line. How many bailouts can we afford and where does it stop? I I mean, at some point, it, it... I'm thinking back to the financial crisis. At some point, instead of bailing out American Airlines, another way to go is to let it go out of business 
And then the United States government could buy the airline at rock bottom prices and then hire everybody back. But that's not the way that we... seems insane. That's actually quite insane. I mean, you need you need to bail these industries out. I, I, I would say the airline industry. I'm not going to the cruise ship industry. It's not clear to me that those people need to be bailed out or they simply the employees need to be helped. Um, it's worth noting that the cruise ship industry is generally registered in the Bahamas right. so that they can avoid everything from American taxes to American safety regulations. So there's a good part good part of me that thinks that the cruise ship industry should go hit up the government of the Bahamas for a bailout right. um, and leave the United States alone, and we will help their workers, many of whom live in the United States. And if anybody should know citizens. how to bail themselves out, it should be the cruise ship industry. I mean, that's... <laughs> All right. Sorry. Is there a drum roll somewhere? Hang on, hang on. You get. I'm going to treat you to this. <laughs> so, what other industries are are threatened? I mean, airline industry. I mean, how do you help restaurants? I, I mean, there's enormous, enormous impacts going on. A, a restaurant, you know, the restaurant industry is in terrible, terrible shape. How do you do that? How do you help? You know, how do you reach out to small business owners who might own one or two restaurants? I mean, when Trump talks, he would think the restaurant industry is McDonald's because mm -hmm. that's what it seems like he's talking about all the time. But in fact, the restaurant industry is it, mostly little small mom and pop shops. And it, this is a really difficult question to answer is how do you structure a bailout so that it gets the money gets to people in need and doesn't get hijacked in some way. And there seems to be enormous pushback at the notion of say giving money to the airlines and then not being able to hand out bonuses or pay dividends on stock with it and whatnot. At the same time, there seems to be a lot of arguing going on about whether you give Americans money and how much you give them and whether you means test it or not. And, you know, because the number that's getting tossed around a lot right now is a check for $1,000. And while that does sound lovely, I mean, that's not going to really cover very many people's mortgage payment, rent payment, never mind all their other living expenses. Most people pay more than that in mortgage or rent. So, you know, how you do that is an open question and it's being done on the fly as it needs to be done on the fly but it's being done with an administration that you know puts new meaning gives new meetings to the word incompetent and you know malicious every single day mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. keep in mind this is an administration once again i can't say this enough that dismantled all but dismantled the united states pandemic response team refused to take any advanced planning like this seriously to the point that when they were warned about it in January, February, they still ignored it. I, I mean, it's just astonishing what occurred. And that Trump, who has gone from last Friday saying, I don't take responsibility for this, to now believing he is the savior of all of us, is absurd. Right, right. Well, I watched some of his press conferences and, and we shouldn't be watching them, by the way. Can I just get that off my chest for one minute? Sure. These should not be broadcast live. He is spewing misinformation. I, I mean, not just occasionally misspeaking, spewing it. He is turning them into mini campaign rallies every single day. It is infuriating that these things are being broadcast live on television. 
and it needs to stop immediately. I mean, I realize I can't stop Fox from doing it. That's, you know, Fox is going to be, you know, Fox is going to UBU sort of Fox. But there's no reason MSNBC or CNN or anyone else should be covering these things on live. I mean, it's it's absurd. What little I saw of these press conferences, I watched them on C-SPAN. Obviously, he should be either put in an insane asylum or Rikers Island, uh, which <laughs> some would say is both. Uh, another discussion. But... I have to admit, he's not senile. He's sharper than Biden, in my estimation. I'm amazed at what he's able to process, that he's able to take in a lot of information. And he does, I, granted, he makes up most of it, but it is. <laughs> yeah, he's not taking in any information whatsoever. <laughs> what he is doing is performing at his usual fairly high standards. I mean, I don't like the guy, but he is a performer and he's still performing fairly well. Um, where he is on the continuum, I have no idea at this point. Um, and I would say the same is true for Biden. The only thing I would say about Biden is, is that Biden seems to do better when he rests. So yeah. when he wasn't active campaigning, he was quite good in the debate with Sanders Sunday night, for instance. Right. Uh, you know, when he was campaigning every day, you could see his performance in the debates with, with the other candidates. You know, was much more midlife. Um, how's that for being polite about it? Yeah. And, you know, and I would say that's a concern. And I think anyone who isn't concerned about that is, you know, is telling themselves what they want to hear. We're digressing slightly. From that's what okay. I want to ask you. Important point. Yeah. If somehow, and, I, and again, I, I know I, I keep saying I sound like Mayor Larry Vaughn from the job. The, the movie Jaws, wanting to keep the beaches open. Again, I, you know, I look at China and I think they've gone two days, maybe three, without any new cases. It seems to be under control in China. Pollution is coming back. Uh, is, you know, if, let's just say, we don't see this spike in the emergency rooms over the weekend, just wishful thinking. And we don't see the spike in the emergency. I'm not an expert on this, and I'm, I, I don't have an opinion on it. No, I'm, so. I'm going to. I'm, 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 that's not what I'm asking you. Okay, I, I just don't. I. I know. You know, I, know. I, I can't. Okay. But let, let's I, say ma you know magical. I can't. No. Okay, I don't want to talk about this. I, I, I just think we're going to see some more people getting sick by the day, and I don't. You know how many is a, is open to debate, but I. Don't, I think we should be talking about the situation as it is now. Okay, I, I, w I was just going to say that I think he'd get reelected if this isn't as bad as... Oh, that, I completely agree. I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, if you would ask me what I partly think is going on, is I think Trump is gambling that this will clear up by the summer. Um, I think he's, I mean, I think when he says August, I mean, it's always hard to know if it's the last person he spoke to, if he doesn't remember what they said, or if he's just trying to make it, oh, and it's solved by Jude and I look like a hero, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's like, reading, it's worse than reading tea leaves half the time. Right. But there's no question. I mean, you know, should this clear up within the next six weeks and, or, you know, or significantly mitigate or not be as bad as we think, 
in some way, you know, he'll look like a hero. There's no question. And I think if I had to make guess, that's what he's going for. Right. But that being said, you know, is that going to happen? You know, if he, you know, the, the, the best experts say, no, it's not. So where does that leave us after that? And I don't know the answer to that. Right. I so, mean, you could make the argument that the economy is going to be in free fall, that, you know, that we're going to have a raging epidemic and everybody's going to turn on the guy in the White House. That's one fairly common sense, you know, conclusion to come to. On the other hand, you could also come to the conclusion that he's going to seize control in some way or look like he's in control in some way. People don't want to rock the boat when there's an epidemic out going on and then he'll get reelected. Let's talk about Pound Foolish and the index card and what psychological studies you've looked at. Because I noticed after 9-11, you know, we let our guard down, let's just say, when it came to 9-11. But I immediately said, oh, fearless leader, save us. And his popularity surged after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump, no question, let his guard down, let the country's guard down with this epidemic. But I noticed I watched a couple of these press conferences and I'm rooting for him. I'm, you know, I'm going to come on, man, step up, you know, save us. Well, yeah, you've got to, right? I yeah. mean, I, I mean, you've got to root for him because the, the, the alternative is so at the moment is so ghastly that, of course, you're going to root for him. Like, please, you know, make this into the, you know, that season of Dallas, which turned out to be somebody's nightmare. Do you right. remember whose nightmare it was? You know, and we can all pretend this didn't happen. Um, so, of course, you're rooting for Donald Trump to succeed, which is really crazy on one basic level, because he's the, you know, if there's, um, you know, he's like the least last person you want to succeed at anything. But no question, you're definitely rooting for him. The issue we have, I, I mean, to me, the, there's a broader issue here. And this is, you know, crisis like this, always bring it home, is that. People like to present the stock market as a sure thing, and it just isn't. I I mean, I have no kind way to say that. There's this sort of idea that you'll put your money in and you can leave it and everything will be fine because it all averages out in the end. And we don't really know that that's true. We know it's been true for about 100 years in the United States. That doesn't totally make it true. Um, And that's, you know, and there are people who studied that. You know, there are other stock markets that have had ter- horrific performances in this, over the course of the 20th century, um, mostly because of a thing called World War II, mm-hmm. which we were mostly spared from because it did not take place on American soil. And that is probably what accounted for ours for, you know, for our, you know, fairly healthy economic growth over the past century, century and a half. Um, the other issue with that idea that the Dow is always going to you'll always be fine is of course that there's a certain amount of self-selection bias going on so it's not such a big deal if you're you know investing via an index fund but if you're investing in individual stocks there's obviously you know your chances of picking the wrong one are fairly not are fairly decent right we all have this idea we're going to be the person to pick Amazon in 1999, when in fact we are the person who probably would have picked AOL in 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who study this stuff will tell you that investors, you know, have a black thumb, the likes of which, you know, makes people who have black thumbs with plants, 
look like they can keep plants alive. Right. And, you know, we do everything wrong. We pick the wrong stocks. We sell at the wrong time. We buy at the wrong time, et cetera, et cetera. So that's always an issue as well. We tend to panic. We momentum you buy, you know, you name it. And I, I think the bigger issue is that people were told that this was a safe, stable way to save for the long run. It does work for some people. There's no question it does. But the idea that it's going to work for everyone has always been much more of a crapshoot than anybody has ever cared to admit. And so to give a perfect example right now is there's probably going to be a lot of people who are going to need to grab money out of their 401k in the next few months. I, I mean, I don't think that's being panicky to discuss that. Most Americans don't have a lot of savings outside their retirement account. It's generally their largest pot of money after their house, which is illiquid. Um, so where are you going to get money from, right? And the answer is probably, if you have one, a retirement account, which means you're going to be pulling money out, not just pulling it out and potentially paying the 10% penalty on it, or you are will be paying a 10% penalty on it, but you're pulling it out at the exact wrong time. So your, our emergencies tend to coincide with when the stock market is troubled. So it's a twofold process that you get screwed on here. Um, and that's going to be a tremendous issue for people. And, you know, this is something we talked about a lot, 2008, 2009, 2010, really up to, say, 2013, 2014. And then as the stock market you know, his gains, you know, solidified and it was clearly in a very good bull market. This sort of the talk went away and you didn't hear about it so much. And you had the rise of all these people who, once again, were just, you know, convinced that they had somehow stumbled into this surefire scheme. And I, I mean, the, the most obvious uh, group of these people were the fire people, you know, the uh, the financial independence retire early crowd. Yes. You know, the people who are, you know, and they were just convinced that they were all going to be fine if they were, you know, living very cheaply and putting all their money into the markets. And God knows they're living very cheaply. Strategy is probably helping them right now. But <laughs> you know, whether they're going to be as fine as they think is another, again, an open question. We just don't know. And by the way, it could all recover tomorrow, too. I'm not making predictions at all. Right. And I think that's the other part of this. Is there are no predictions. And anybody who gives you a production is, by definition, you know, trying to sell you something because there's just no way to know this. And, you know, there and if they do, by some fluke, actually have the answer to this, why on earth would they be telling you? Right, right. And there are forces that make it impossible for you to save money. Uh, the Federal Reserve keeps lowering interest rates. So if you want to be like your grandmother and just put your money in the bank, you are actually warned that you're going to lose money by saving it. If you put it in the bank, right. you you're, you're, can't keep up with inflation and there's the possibility of negative interest rates. So it's almost as though the Federal Reserve is propping up the stock market by keeping interest rates low. You need credit your your credit score is diminished if you don't have enough credit cards if you haven't if you don't service debt you're considered a credit risk if if you pay 
If you pay off everything, nobody wants to lend to you. So the whole system seems to be designed for you not to save money and to rack up debt. It, it, uh, you write in the Washington Post. Let me read you what you, you wrote over the Washington Post mm -hmm. in a great piece. Coronavirus is an indictment of our way of life. And it's just, you know, it's like it's like wasabi uh, that you, it's uh, you say that Donald Trump is the culmination of, I would say, 40 years of our country before I read this. The, the, right. the essence is between 40 and 50 years. Yeah. Of what? 40 to 50 years of, of, of prioritizing business over people, of prioritizing, you know, this idea that we could all get ahead one by one. But most important, prioritizing money over anything else. So the result is, is there was ultimately this massive wave of disinvestment. Mm hmm. We are and all so, you know, you know, you get this idea. One of the reasons there's not enough ventilators or not enough in the United States right now, it's not fully Donald Trump's fault. I mean, it's very easy to blame him because he's obviously made a bad situation about 100 times worse. But, you know, hospital beds, for instance, have been shrinking for 20 years, even as the population has surged in the United States. And the reason for that is because hospitals, you know, we are the only first world country that allows its medical industry to be, you know, this, you know, completely uncontrolled for profit business. Hospitals are in the business of making money in many cases for their shareholders. Um, even nonprofit hospitals, frankly, act often like money making enterprises. And. So they've cut back on hospital beds dramatically. They've cut back on, you know, keeping things in reserve for emergencies like extra ventilators, because that's expensive. You know, ventilators cost between $25,000 and $50,000 each. They need to be maintained. You can't just shove them in a storage unit and forget that they're there. Uh, they need to be updated. They go out of date. New generations come along. So, you know, this is something that you're supposed to prepare for, but we did not. At the same time, of course, for all the claims that, oh, we have to pay these insanely high medical costs because, you know, we have pharmaceuticals won't do research otherwise. In fact, you know, they've let go all sorts of stuff, you know, basic health, you know, research in, so that they can research stuff that makes the money, like stuff for, like, example, male pattern baldness is a big one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Viagra, I mean worthwhile sure i'm not knocking it it's important stuff but it's not a new generation of antibiotics either right and you know these are and a lot of this is just coming home to roost for us that this sort of idea that you can just go away and live you know fecklessly over and over again it's just not true we we live in this country that kind of in a lot of ways doesn't function the way it should and we often talk about it in terms of infrastructure or infrastructures, you know, I think it's a D plus. It's been rated by the society, by an engineering society, plus D plus for over a decade now. And, you know, it's kind of a joke on one level, you know, until somebody gets killed by it. You know, I remember my son when we were in Barcelona a few years ago, you know, just we're standing, we're on the subway and out of nowhere, he looks at me and says, their subway is our, is better than our cella. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It is. Right. You know, they have those partitions so that people can't fall on the tracks there, which we still don't have here. And these are really important things. And, you know, so this is 
you know, coming back to haunt us in this terrible, terrible way as a result of this epidemic. And it's obviously not anything that's going to get solved in the next three weeks or next six weeks or even next six months. How could it be, right? I mean, you can't just fix decades of refusing to invest in the infrastructure, um, you know, in a week or even a year. I mean, it's decades in the making. And I, and I don't, I, I don't even begin to know what to say to people to make it sound good in that way. Yeah, it, it's it's in my mind, it's become a nation of grifters. And, I, you know, I remember we sent kids off to war in Iraq without body armor. You know, right. I mean, we, we've always been a nation of grifters. I mean, this is something sociologists and historians will point out. Americans have always had a fatal weakness for grifters. Uh, and it, it's really fascinating stuff to read about, by the way. I mean, if you ever, uh, and you probably will be really bored in the next few weeks, okay? So you can go look all this stuff up. It's really fascinating. Um, there's books on how in the United States, we historians have really studied why we venerate sales and grifters in a way many other cultures do not. And, and the best guess that anyone has ever come up with is that we don't have an, an aristocracy here. You know, we don't have... You know, we have celebrity, but we don't have aristocracy. So our aristocracy is already based kind of on a grift and on sales. And then it's to, we get there by somehow selling you on ourselves. That's how you move up here and how you gain prominence to an extent. So we've had this sort of culture that goes hand in hand with venerating the grift. We sort of admire the grift in a way that other cultures do not. Have you ever bought something just because the salesman or saleswoman was really good and you knew it and you wanted to reward that person just for their pitch? I have. Sometimes I'm more likely to like feel sort of bad for them, frankly, and I'll buy something because they just they're good at what they're doing. And I just sort of feel awful because I know that they're on commission. So I'm kind of like, OK, I'll buy this. Um all right. I think I'm not going to be able to afford to do. No I'm kidding. Um, I'm fine. <laughs> who, who should we Who should we trust? Before you go, you write about this in Pound Foolish and the Index Card. Who do we trust with what what money we have left? Well, I mean, that's a good question, right? Um, Dave Ramsey. Gener- Dave Ramsey. Oh my God! Can we talk about Dave Ramsey for yeah. a second? Yeah. Are you, are you going to cut me off? No. He this week. He this week went on this five-minute, no, this 10, 15-minute rant. I'm under-exaggerating it. This, like, 10 to 15-minute rant where he talked about how, you know, it was really terrible and sad that people were losing their jobs because of coronavirus. And, of course, you could stop the baby steps if you've lost your job. But, you know, you should immediately go out and get another part-time job to replace it. Mm-hmm. And we're like, where exactly are you to get that part-time job? Right? Like, what part-time job is this man talking about? The economy is shedding potentially millions of jobs. This is absurd, right? And then he, for a kicker, said something along the lines of, you know, and don't go quit your job because some coworker of yours didn't wash their hands properly. Mm. Um, As if there's some epidemic of people quitting their jobs because a coworker didn't wash their hands properly. And most offices were not going in at all. 
So right. it would be very odd for me to quit a job over um, somebody not washing their hands properly. Though so I suppose I could kick a child out of the apartment. But <laughs> that's, I mean, it's just like absurd. Like, where, where is he getting this from? I, I mean, this level of blaming people in the United States is still very strong. And in fact, the head of uh, the former head of FEMA under Trump, um, the first appointee, first awful appointee, Barack Long, was on Fox the other night and was telling people that it was partly their own fault because they didn't have insurance. You, you know, if you'd have if you had a small business had insurance, they'd be fine. Which, on top of everything else, is flat out ignorant. Most many insurance policies will not cover such things like this, and it doesn't matter whether you had insurance or not. I mean, it's just. Not you, know, you frequently see writers saying this is not covered. Um, sometimes you don't, but you know it's not simply that. And second, most small businesses are operating with intensely small margins, so insurance is in many cases actually a luxury for them. As you, horrible as that sounds, I mean this is what the government is there for, though. That's my bigger point. Okay, well, I don't want to get lost in my furious rant about this. That's what the government is there for. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to step in and help people. And, you know, and it's more than just offering small businesses, you know, loan guarantees, zero interest loans. That money still needs to be paid back, which is just going to still stress these businesses out. You know, they, in many cases, they need the, you know, the several thousand dollars as much as you or I potentially do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At Pound Foolish, you write part of the grift is blame the victim blame blame mm -hmm. poor people for the the mess they find themselves in right and i think i think if this crisis if anything good comes out of this crisis if 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 yeah i i think the the it's probably going to end this kind of myth that you can overcome this stuff by yourself because you simply can't. I mean, most people simply don't have the resources to survive prolonged bouts of unemployment. Not like this. I mean, there's, you know, the advice is, oh, take a gig job. What gig job? No one's going anywhere. No one needs dog walkers. They're all home. Mm -hmm. So what gig job? You know, nobody needs to, you know, to make a birthday cake. Uh, the L.A. Times had this article today about some birthday cake business that's on the ropes, right? Nobody wants a birthday cake because they came. This woman was making birthday cakes in her home. You know, nobody's ordering a birthday cake because they're not having a party because you can't have people over. I mean, so, I mean, you know, it's just kind of astonishing that this stuff has been allowed to fester in our culture for so, so long. But, you know, clearly it's at some form of end game. I mean, if you're going to see even really upper middle class people hurt very badly by this, and there's no question in my mind that's going to happen, you know, at a certain point, you've got to say, we need Medicare for all. This is crazy. Right. You know, right. we can't have people afraid to go get tested for coronavirus. They need to pass a law so that people can get tested and not worry about copays. But nobody is saying, oh, you know, if you get stuck on a and get stuck on a ventilator for three weeks at a hospital, you know, you're not going to get stuck with copays and surprise bills mm -hmm. and whatnot. In mm -hmm. fact, when Trump tried to say that at a press conference, you know, he said, oh, the insurance company said they'd cover everything. And it turned out to be absolutely untrue. To go back to my other rant about why is this man allowed to spew <laughs> on live television? <laughs> Do you want me to keep ranting? I can keep going. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, well, I've been alone. I've been in my apartment for a <laughs> week. Help! <laughs> 
Last question. Last question. Uh, catastrophizing. There's a tendency for humans to... Uh, you've talked about this on the show. When looking at the economy, when looking at the, the, the stock market, when looking at our own financial fate, we tend to overblow... The, the 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 downside and minimize the upside? Am I getting that right? Didn't right. You? I, I've talked about this. We do both. I mean, we, you know, we overestimate the upside, then we minimize it. We do it at the exact wrong times. I mean, uh, let me put it to you this way. I truly believe at this point, if you're going to sell your stock portfolio now, you missed the boat, okay? Could I be wrong? Sure. During the Great Depression, the stock market declined by 90%. Do I think that's likely to happen? No. Okay. Um, I think you missed the boat. You had to sell, you know, at most, you know, several, you know, at the latest several weeks ago, right? Mm -hmm. At this point, you might as well ride it out unless you have an emergency. Um, is it easy to do that? No, which is one of my reasons why I think people need more Social Security and retirement and pensions. Um, which would then be good for the so, stock market. That's the right, stupidity of right. Wall Street. People right. will and hold up. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You could talk. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um, I was just saying that, like, it makes sense yeah. if you if you increase Social Security, people won't panic sell and the stock market will be more stable. Although I often wonder. Eh, I think they'll panic sell anyway. Humans be humans. Right. The right. difference is it would cause them less long term damage to do that. And the. But the bigger point is that, and I now lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. What were we talking about? I, <laughs> I'm getting old. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. not. I'm you're 27, not. audience. I'm 27. <laughs> Catastrophizing um, the way we... Right. Oh, catastrophizing. Yeah, I mean, what I was going to say was, thank you, is that I think this will be worse in ways that we can't predict and better in others. I think, you know, it's very easy at six in the morning to lay in bed shaking, convinced everything is ending. Um, it's probably not. That doesn't mean it's going to be great. Um, and it's, it doesn't mean that awful things won't happen. And I think, as I said, I think it'll be worse in some ways and better in others. And I don't know what those ways will be. Right. So, but th that's just the reality of it. And we're not very good at predicting the future as humans. It's not, not really in our skill set. It's, we like to think it is, but it's it's simply not. Um, you know, you you tell me who predicted this, and you know, last year, right? I mean, I know you could say, oh well, we have to pre you know prepare for a pandemic. What will eventually happen? And that's true, but um, I don't think anybody thought it was going to be, say, you know, March of two thousand twenty. Um, and this you know, is I've actually been telling a story this the past couple of weeks where I was at a. The one Christmas party I managed to get myself to last year, somebody <laughs> asked me about the Affordable Care Act and how this was all going to shake, and Medicare for All, and how this was all going to shake out. And I said, well, there's a good scenario and there's a bad scenario. And they said, okay, get started. I said, okay, the Supreme Court overturns the, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act. And I explained how the Affordable Care Act is really interwoven into, with, you know, that ongoing case that Trump is still pursuing, by the way. Um, you know, it's interwoven into the health insurance system and what a catastrophe this would be to un unwind it. And they said, OK, so why don't you tell us um, what the good scenario is now? And I said, oh, that is the good scenario. And, right. they, and the person said, well, what was the bad scenario? And I said, oh, I said, 
an epidemic that just crashes the healthcare system. Um, I did not have any foreshadowing that this was going to happen. Right. I swear right. to God. Um, what has influenced my thinking on that, and uh, should you wonder, because I've said this for a long time, is that I have a grandmother, or did have a grandmother, she died a couple of years ago, whose first childhood memories were of coffins being carried out of houses during the Spanish flu. So I've always perhaps had more of an awareness of epidemics and what they can do than a lot of other people, because my grandmother is apparently one of the few people who ever really would talk about the Spanish flu. And this is something I did not realize till very recently, how so many people who went through it would never talk about it. Hmm. Uh, which is a really fascinating thing to know that it simply is almost gone from our history books and whatnot. Um, and this was not, not true in my family at all. My grandmother talked about it pretty much till the end of her life, which was a long life. She lived to be 96. So she would always talk about it and how awful it was. Um, so, but that had always been part of my thinking about why we so desperately need health insurance reform or health care reform, I should say. So you say health insurance reform is to give into the industry, for God's sake. Right. Uh, is because in this situation, our health care system makes things much worse. And it makes things much worse because it's for profit. It makes things much worse because people aren't sure what's going to get paid and how. And it makes things worse because it led to massive disinvestment over a period of decades and so on down the line. Right. Let me read what you wrote and then we'll end. We are all connected. We all need to take on the task of rebuilding our society and putting protections in place so that when the next crisis comes, we are ready to take it on. That looks like Medicare for all. Paid sick leave. That looks like. Right. It looks like paid sick leave. It looks like a lot of things that we don't have right now. Extended, uh, you know, much more generous unemployment, unemployment that covers gig workers, which it does not right now. So think about all those people, because gig workers as a whole are already not earning a very good living. Um, you know, what's going to happen to all these people in Hollywood who own their own small businesses that and comedians, which I'm sure you know a bunch who are not performing right now. I mean, what is going to happen to all these people? And it's not clear to me that that many of them are going to be even eligible for unemployment benefits. If you don't work for somebody, you usually don't get unemployment. What are you reading? I am reading The Mirror and the Light, the Hillary Mantle, the third in the Wolf Hall trilogy. And I think it's extraordinary, though I would not say it's as good as Wolf Hall, which is the first book in the series, which is about, you know, her novelization of the life of Thomas Cromwell, who was, you know, sort of Henry VIII's consigliere and sort of the power behind the throne for many years, um, you know, during all the various marriages and the Reformation and, you know, pulling out of the Catholic Church in England. Um, and it's kind of fascinating. Have you read any of it? You know, I started it and I, I couldn't, my own character flaw prevented me from finishing it. So, no. Was that Wolf Hall or the first yeah, one? Yeah, Wolf Hall. One? Yeah, my sister gave it what to was me. Your own, what was your character flaw? Uh, my inability to get lost in a book like that. I, anyway, I, 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 what, what I have right but now. Because, no, I will give you my pitch and why I beg people to read Wolf Hall. I mean, the, the whole trilogy is fantastic, but I would say Wolf Hall is, a, is spectacular on a whole other level. And it's because, in part, it is a novel about middle age disguised as a historical 
novel. And it is simply extraordinary in how she does that. And, you know, how you make your peace with your parents and how you, how in middle age, the past often seems as real as the present and the mistakes you make. And and it's just kind of a fascinating novel in and of itself for that alone. Um, You know, the acceptance of tragedy in your life. um, It's just an extraordinary novel, Wolf Hall. Um, And then the rest of the series as well, Bring Up the Bodies and Now the Mirror and the Light. Um, And and it's also about power and how it plays out in our lives. So it, it has all sorts of, you know, things that are going on that are just fascinating. Well, a sign of mental health for me is being able to lay on the couch and read for long stretches of time. Not happening. Uh, you know, that, that, that to me is a sign. I know when I'm okay, it's when I lose myself in a book. Not lately, but uh, hats off to anybody who can read and not watch TV. Oh, and I should, oh, oh, and I should pitch one other book that I actually read just before all this started um, because I have an interview with her coming out in a couple of days is um, on Tuesday, a anthology of Barbara Ehrenreich's collective works will be coming out. Wow. Called Had I Known. And um, it's the, the original essay that was nickel and dimed is in there. The original essay that is bright-sided called Cancerland is in there. Um, some amazing works going back to the 1980s are in there. So um, if you want to get a new book that will be at, you can get it on Tuesday, I would suggest that as well. How big an influence was Barbara Ehrenreich on you? Oh, huge, 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 huge. Um, I find, you know, the honesty with which she approaches things and the unsentimental way she looks at things is, is I consider, one of the biggest influences on me um, and my work um, that I can imagine um, and who she considers the enemy, so to speak, right? And who you're supposed to be helping. I, I, I just, but always unsentimental. I admire the, you know, the humor, the warmth, the rigorous honesty of what she does. I, you know, I just, I'm, you know, in awe of what she does. Frequently. Yeah. Yeah. Helena Olin, author of Pound Foolish, the index card reader over at the Washington Post. Follow her on Twitter at Helene Olin. Stand the line for one quick second, please. Okay.